You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 437, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Nick Schroederer. Brittany, how are you doing? I'm doing so good, Nick. I am absolutely covered from head to toe in chalk as I'm talking to you. You might be like, why, Brittany? Why are you covered in chalk? I am that person at CrossFit who is the chalk monster. So if there is any sort of advantage I can get with gripping a bar or anything, I'm going to do it with chalk. And I'm going to readily admit right now that I did not wash it off before I started. Oh, my gosh. Yes, that is legit. Here's a question for you. You know that meme, and at this point, I'm too afraid to ask, like you don't know a thing and it's gone so long, you're too afraid to ask about the thing because you're like, well, it's been too long, I can't ask. Oh, absolutely. So that meme is me right now. (laughs) I've heard of CrossFit, it feels like a decade and I've never Googled about it. I just see it in my timeline all the time. What is CrossFit? (laughs) So CrossFit, I would say it's a fitness program that's really built around functional fitness. So you're doing movements that should be helping you in real life. So, you know, if your friend is underneath a car and they get pinned, We work on things like deadlifts so that way you would be able to run over and get your friend up. We don't do like trampoline work. Funnily enough, we don't do a lot of bicep curls, which is funny. I feel like that's functional, but apparently they don't see it that way. But it's kind of divided up into three things. You're either doing gymnastics work, which, by the way, I'm terrible at. (laughs) You're doing strength work, which I love, or you're doing endurance work, which endurance work is my thing. I have an engine, so I can go a long time, but try to get me to do a pull-up and I definitely struggle. Oh my gosh, that is the best explanation ever. Thank you so much, because that's how I feel. So these days I've been just trying to get more active, but kind of like at this point in my life for goals, I'm not literally sitting at night wishing, oh, I wish I had huge biceps or six-pack abs, but I would like to be healthier and stronger in life because I just notice it. I want to be able to walk four miles to a cool bar or a coffee shop or go to visit family in Scotland and go up and down the mountain and just like, or do, you know, yard work on a weekend without pulling something or being laid up after 20 minutes. Right. So I just want to be like, and I've noticed the less active I get, the easier I get hurt. That whole thing about rolling over in bed and you've pulled your arm or getting up and you've pulled your leg. And then, yes. So that's what I'm concerned about. It sounds like CrossFit's kind of oriented for like practical applied functional fitness, right? Or is that? Yeah, it gets ruined because there are people in CrossFit that are incredible and they're elite. And, you know, you see those videos of them snatching like 300 pounds and whatnot. And people are like, oh, CrossFit just leads to injuries. No, like CrossFit can really be adapted to be scaled. So that way you can start like in a very sane level. So like a good example is jump roping. The scaled version of jump roping is just single unders. One pass over, you're doing jumps. Most people can do that or you can work your way up to it. And then the elite level for CrossFit is to be able to do double unders where the rope passes under twice. And that's something I'm working on, but it doesn't mean I can't do single unders just to get that general fitness in. Well, that's really cool. Well, I'll definitely look more into that. And thanks for explaining it. Hopefully there's at least one listener who felt the same or like they've (laughs) heard this CrossFit word for many years, but they've never taken the eight seconds to Google it. So it's best to get an explanation from someone who does it. And it, At this point in my life, definitely sounds like a good idea. And it sounds like it's adaptable to what you want it to be. And I think there's, is there a bit of a community aspect to it too? Or Huge community aspect. It's one of those things where no matter you're doing the workout scaled or they call it prescription RX, 
Regardless, the idea is that we all do the workout together. And as people finish, you don't put your equipment away. You watch everybody and you applaud them and you push them forward. It's a very high five base, fifth bump base workout and something I clearly missed during the pandemic. And so there are ways to do it safe where you're doing it outside and you're distanced from each other and whatnot. I really like the community aspect around it. So, Nick, you absolutely nailed it. Yeah, I think that's the kind of thing we definitely need, especially a lot of us are remote workers. And I don't know if we focus enough on being a sociable human, even if we're introverts, which like I have an introverted side no one knows about. It's good to have some amount of interaction with humans with shared interests because a lot of us aren't sitting in an office with fellow coders geeking out about Ruby. Totally agreed. Now, on the latest edition of me creeping on your Twitter feed and remembering to ask you a question, you had tweeted out, and I think it's actually your pinned tweet right now, <laughs> to, <laughs> to ask you, what is your number one comfort food when you're feeling low, Nick? Thank you so much for asking that, Brittany. I was thinking about this recently and I pinned it. I'll unpin it after this podcast because you're the first person to ask me on a podcast. This is very specific to me, but I like thinking about it. My number one comfort food when I am feeling low is a jar of sauerkraut. So <laughs> yeah, I'm not joking. It's pretty sure it's calorie free. It's salty. It's crunchy. And here's the thing. I'm an American, but I'm a German ethnic background. My dad was the first one born speaking English. So we have the family recipe every year. We would make maybe 50 quarts of it from cabbage, you know, raw. And, and we'd eat it out throughout the year. And I just have this great memory of like, before you brush your teeth at night, the guys or whoever in our family would get together and we'd pass around one of the jars of sauerkraut with a fork and talk about our day. I know it's such a weirdly specific thing that was just ours, but because of all those memories and because of just like how much I've grown enjoying that food from the age of three, I definitely would not eat it around people because I know it's fermented cabbage, right? But for me, if I just need to just have a quiet moment in the kitchen, it's kind of like having maybe for some people, it might be a glass of whiskey, but for me, just a jar of sauerkraut, a fork and five to 10 minutes, just sitting there kind of pondering the day. That is my number one comfort food when I am feeling low. I have so many questions. So <laughs> I have to ask, do you drink the liquid at the end or is it over once <laughs> the cabbage has disappeared? Folks, if you really don't like sauerkraut, you can fast forward two minutes. So as I am eating it, oh God. to be fair, I've done a soup podcast, right? So... I'll drink the juice as it goes. Okay. I don't want to drink too much or else it'll dry out. And then the bit at the end. And if you're kind of health nutty, which I'm not really, but there is some interesting research behind stuff like sauerkraut and as far as fighting off colds or I don't know if it's probiotics or whatever, something about the curing and that process. And by the way, it also is a zero calorie way to stave off cravings. If you got the munchies for like potato chips or salami or something late at night, it's just nice and salty and crunchy and crunchy and juicy so that it just takes off all the edge too. And it just kind of like stops the hunger for the night. Yeah, it's really enjoyable. I have to try to not eat too much. But again, maybe it's because of my conditioning. I've never been ill on it. I don't know if I could eat enough to be ill. It's just cured cabbage. So Brittany, I'd be interested if you have, because you knew this question, I'd love to reflect that at you. Do you have a comfort food when you're feeling low? I feel like it's somewhat related, Nick. Mine is pickles. Oh my God. Pickles. I absolutely love pickles and I love drinking the juice at the end because when I played roller derby, I had a fellow skater who taught me, hey, you want to get salt back into your body? Forget Gatorade. That stuff is sugary and gross. Get some pickle juice into your system. And now it's become one of my comfort foods. 
That's amazing. And you know, I have heard like if you start to get a cold, if you're like on day one of a sore throat, pickle juice, sauerkraut juice, it's so good. And do you, would you have your pickles like any time of the day or like at the end of the day as well? Or is it just whenever? I think every hour is pickle on the block, <laughs> right? <laughs> I have never been pregnant, but I hear about people having cravings of vanilla ice cream and pickles. So I tried it. It's delicious. I mean, like... <laughs> Really, does anything not go with vanilla ice cream, to be fair? But it is, yeah, definitely, definitely a comfort food. Well, I'll definitely try it. One last thing I'd like to say about pickles. Moving to the UK, they have a completely different culture around pickles here. And every jar you find here has sugar in it. So kind of like the American bread and butter pickles, which I'm not a huge fan of. But I loved like the Vlasic, Zesty, Spear, or like Dill, the common American pickle. And I really miss it. If I didn't have fear about it, I'd definitely be shoving that in my suitcase every time I visited. But if that exploded, that would be terrible, right? Okay, well, you'll have to hold me to a promise. The next time we see each other, we're going on a pickle bonanza of some sort. Oh, yeah. I will literally go to the supermarket and we will buy jars. There is a Tabasco Vlasic one at one point. Yes, let's do it. Okay, perfect. Honey Badger has been a longtime sponsor of the Ruby on Rails podcast, and we are seriously grateful. What's Honey Badger? Glad you asked. Do you have to keep your production online even when you'd rather be coding? Monitoring, like web development, can be complicated. There are tons of tools and techniques, but you just want to know that your app is up and that your customers are happy. Whether your team is large or small, you don't want to be stuck watching charts or tailing logs all day to make sure nothing is going wrong. When your customers encounter a problem, you need clear, actionable intelligence, not walls of charts and reams of logs. Honey Badger is the application health monitoring tool built for you, the developer who cares about a quality product and happy customers. To dive into all of this, head on over to honeybadger.io. Well, listeners, thank you for hanging in there. Let's <laughs> move on to some Ruby content. So Nick, you just gave a talk at Ruby Kagi. So I want to hear about your experience, highlights of the conference. Like, how did it go? Yeah, this was a thrilling conference to be at. Unfortunately, For this year, I wasn't able to attend in person. I am making it, whether I get accepted or not, a big goal to go next year. I have a few teammates that live in Japan, but it was a really, really fun experience. It catered to everything. So if you're a virtual attendee, you could watch. If you're a virtual speaker, you could pre-record or read it live. You could speak in person. There's two tracks, English and Japanese. Live translations, by the way, even online. So like if you're attending in person, you get an earpiece And you can hear the Japanese to English translation. Most Ruby committers are there, right? It's a very Ruby technical centric conference. I'd say it's probably the pinnacle. It's very oriented to like, where do we want to take Ruby? Let's focus on the language itself. And there's a lot of great stuff when it's posted, which I think will be soon. Definitely catch up on it. A lot of stuff from my team was there. My teammate, Kevin Newton, who might be worth having on again is taking on rewriting the Ruby parser. And Max announced that, which was quite exciting. And a lot of other talks, I don't want to spoil them all, but I would say it was very enjoyable. I was remote live. I don't know if I was the only remote live person, but I was very pleased to be not the first one up after the keynote opening. But I was also nervous because I'm like, oh no, will the bugs be worked out yet? Because I'm a challenging speaker because I'm going to be on a screen with my Belfast Wi-Fi talking to Jan in an auditorium, but it was fine. So I got up at four in the morning, had a massive cup of coffee. I'm not a morning person, by the way. Like I will pay more for flights to sleep in. So 
I got all set up and I'm sitting here at 4.45. I was due to speak at 5.30, watching what's going on. And the live stream is so good. They have a really good chat room. They have these really interesting Japanese commercials that look like AAA television commercials, but for Ruby companies. And I go into the Zoom because it was done through that. So I've got three screens and I've got my laptop on my right, which is showing me what everyone else can see. So that's like my test. I've got my screen with a camera, which has my speaker notes. And then I've got the screen that I share, which is just the slide. And obviously I'll tell you what I'm talking about in a second. (laughs) But I was so nervous. I go into the Zoom and there's these so polite people. And I hear lots of Japanese being spoken in the background. Their screens are off and they're saying, you're like, hello, Nick. Thank you for being here. Can you mute yourself right now? And I just keep getting nervous. We kind of figure it out. And then they said, when you see your face, start speaking. So kind of when I see myself on the stream, I'm being broadcast in the auditorium starts speaking. And then the person said, oh, by the way, one more thing. And then commercials came on before my talk, blaring audio. I couldn't hear anything. And so I'm just like seeing these Japanese commercials. So I whispered into the microphone. I'm just going to start talking when I see myself. Okay. And then that was the last I heard from anyone, but yeah, I think it went well. One of my teammates actually did a video of my conclusion and the applause. So it was really humbling to see people taking the time to sit in an auditorium with a zoom screen. I'm going to be haunted the rest of the day, Nick, wondering what they were going to say when they said one more thing. (laughs) Yeah, no, honestly, I'd like to say to people, I know it's a long ways. I know, especially if you don't have support from work, it's hard to get to, Japan's a ways away, but if you do have support or if you can, I've not been in person, but it's just got such a high reputation as a conference. And I think the first one is in 2006 and tickets sold out in an hour then. Why the Lucky Stiff did the first artwork for it, funnily enough, but it's so good. And I was honored to speak there. So you're like, what topic did I submit that was able to to into a conference like this? And I was speaking on Ruby archaeology, forgotten web frameworks. So... There's kind of this Kaigi thing, and maybe RubyConf is similar, where you don't really talk about Rails, even though we're on the Rails podcast, because mm-hmm. there is RailsConf, which is massive. So I'm like thinking with Kaigi, I was like, you know what, though? Web isn't off limits. And there's so much cool old school frameworks that were written in Ruby and have a lot of interesting things to talk about. So why don't I hone in on like four and really dig in and just talk through them and see what we can learn and kind of inspire people? Because in the 2000s, my main theme is... Everyone was writing a Ruby web framework and everybody was competing with each other. And we've settled on this lovely framework that I'm on the podcast with, but you really kind of broaden your understanding of Rails by going through these other ones. And that's what I covered. I could definitely vacuum up the rest of our time talking about what I covered in there, but I think I'll avoid going into every single gory detail today. Well, I have one follow-up question, Nick. So based on the frameworks that you talked about at Kaigi, Do you feel any of them were just ahead of their time? And if they had come out closer to now, do you think they would have had a chance? Oh, my God. Absolutely. So I can say the names of some of them. So there's one called Nitro, which came out before Rails. There's two of one of them I didn't cover. And it was before Rack. So everything's like, well, if you're building a Ruby web app, it has to be on Rack. No, this one was just on the Ruby standard library, CGI.rb, which Rack is built on. And so it's like, yeah, they just rolled their own. And there's another one called Iowa, which came out in 2001 and still had production apps up till a year ago out there using it. And it was similarly not using Rack. The other one that I thought was interesting was Ruby Waves, which actually had two dependencies built in in 2008, which used pattern matching before Ruby had pattern matching. 
and wow. and auto loading before Zeitwerk. And it was a really cool approach to both of those. And it, it used the pattern matching to like direct requests. So like if a request hit a Ruby resource or class object that you could write this pattern matching kind of style to like if whatever shape the request was in, you'd know what methods to hit in return. So yeah. And the one other thing I thought was super cool like, that I can say in 15 seconds or less is routes.rb can get massive. There's one called Remaze, which is probably the one you can still build today, even though it's been gone for a while. And instead of that, in your controller, there was a method you'd call called map. And map actually is where you'd specify what request should direct to that controller. And then within the controller, each method would handle that. So if you want the root controller, just be map forward slash. So you'd keep the routing more tied in with the controllers, as opposed to this huge routes.rb file where you kind of have to just have tribal knowledge for how you organized it. Okay, well, I am super stoked to see your talk. So I'm hoping that comes out soon and we'll definitely update the show notes in the future when it comes out. So that way all the listeners can watch it as well. I'm glad that you had such a good time, Nick. And I really do believe like the next time around, you are going to get accepted and you're going to make your way to Japan. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for saying that. Also, if you want to like hold on for a little bit, I will be giving this talk in November at RubyConf in Houston. So I'll be giving it again with similar content as well. So I'm really looking forward to giving it live. That's great. So Nick, are you excited about coming back to the U.S. to go to RubyConf, Maine? It's really exciting to be back. It's one of my big opportunities to like explore the country I grew up in and also go back. Never been to Texas. Honestly, if you look at a lot of the Ruby comps, they're more Western. And I think for Eastern time zone and for Europeans, that meant it was a longer journey. So I'm interested in not being eight time zones from home, but being more like five or six. So yeah, that makes things a little more straightforward and it'll be great to see everyone. So that's exciting. And it's, I know it's right after Thanksgiving, but if I do direct from London, then I think I'll be okay avoiding the American side if I just do a direct flight. With AppSignal, you can monitor your Ruby apps from A to Z. Error tracking, performance insights, server metrics, uptime, custom dashboards, you name it, they have it. With their smart What Happened Here feature, you can see how every moving part was behaving at a specific point in time. Stop digging around and let AppSignal connect the dots for you. Visit appsignal.com slash ROR podcast for more information. As a listener of the Ruby on Rails podcast, you get a 10% discount and a box of sweet treats. That's appsignal.com slash ROR podcast. I've been trying to get a grip on which conference the known Ruby podcasters are going to. And so I'm still trying to figure that out. I'm definitely going to many. I am waitlisted on my talk. And so I want to I want to dig into that as well, because I'm actually really stoked to be waitlisted. <laughs> I get extremely nervous no matter what, Nick. I get so, so nervous going into a talk. And I mm. almost wonder if this is going to be a save for me because you never know what could happen. Like at any given moment, someone might not be able to give a talk and I could have to step in. And I wonder if my ability to improvise and get ramped up quickly going back on CrossFit might be a strength. I know you've been waitlisted before. What was your experience? Well, yeah, I mean, I think my experience with being waitlisted, I'll be honest, it actually updated a couple of weeks later. So it wasn't a last minute thing. So I did find out I actually ended up speaking. Let's explain for the listener with waitlisting is the concept that you will be on site and on hand if somebody pulls out the day before, right? 
Yeah, yes. You must be ready to step in and give your talk if any of the accepted speakers back out, get sick or in any other way, unable to speak. And let's be honest, I'd like I don't know what it's like in the United States, but there's definitely one thing that kind of still exists that can take people out of a talk on top of life. A life's always been a thing. Yeah, Brittany, I want to talk about what you're saying is like being on site and getting summoned. I feel like just knowing you that if you and I were given a prompt and four hours to prepare, we could do maybe 20 minutes like of something. You'll be doing the prep anyway, but you don't know for sure when or where it's going to happen. But I think like you're saying, you kind of thrive on that. Yeah. So the reason I think it's going to work out is because the talk that I submitted is the talk that I gave in Sin City Rubies. So at that point, it will have been six months plus since I've given the talk. And of course, like I'm going to refresh it when I bring it to RubyConf Mini. But it almost it feels like it's just another performance of that talk. And I'm sure that performance is going to go very differently because RubyConf Mini, while it is going to be a smaller conference, is still going to be bigger than Sin City Ruby. And it's going to be a different Mm. audience and a different vibe. And let's be honest, I think the best thing about holding on to a talk and evolving it is you learn a lot more and you can add more flavor to it. And I think you can agree with me on this. (laughs) You know what parts of your talk hit well last time. And so you can kind of sit in those and really feel confident going into it that, you know, at least parts of your talk really resonated with the audience. Yeah, that's totally true. Right. And by resonated, we don't mean they were cheering or laughing because I found that's hard to replicate. Sometimes you could see in their eyes where like you're really enjoying this bit and you kind of want to stay two more minutes in this bit. And they're kind of like, even if you just when you could see their eyes now for the listeners, if you've never spoke before, you cannot count on being able to see their eyes. I had that at RailsConf because of the light in my face. I was like, oh, what do I do now that I can't see their eyes? But yeah, at least you go in knowing what kind of the hits are, what you really enjoy. And you can evolve it around that. And I think some people do because I gave the original Ruby archaeology talk a couple of times and it was never the same content. I just swapped out all the gems. So definitely enjoy evolving a talk kind of like on tour. <laughs> like another. <laughs> yes. It's like, all right, let's play that encore with that song. Well, let's talk about how Andrew Culver is taking it in an entirely different direction with the Rail SAS conference. It's coming up in October. He's just brought me on as a field producer, which I'm super excited about. So I can kind of explain what that means. So the way that Andrew's looking at the conference is that you can come to the conference and you can watch these talks happening, but they're not for you. What he's aiming for is he's bringing in this very high quality Hollywood type setup to record the talks. And so it's really for the talks to live in perpetuity. And so the speaker is really aiming for the cameras and it's really different. And so as the speakers are going to be coming off stage, my job is to be working with part of the crew to interview the speakers as they come off and get their thoughts about well, is there any parts in their talk now looking back into it? Would they want to elaborate further? And then those interviews are going to get cut into the conference talk. And that's the conference talk. Does that make sense? Oh my gosh, that is so cool. cool. My context going into our podcast today was I'd seen a reference to this conference. I'd heard a few people talk and I didn't know all that. And I think that flips the script on its head, right? Because when you watch conference talks online, how do you feel? I'll tell you how you feel. I'm going to assume how you feel. You feel like a thing has happened already for a group of people in a room, but you're getting a little bit of the cliff notes. It's like watching a Zoom that's been recorded. It's nice, but you aren't a part of the thing that happened. That was whatever. But we all watch, at least at some point in our lives, have watched live television. 
where there's a live audience, but it's for the TV. It's like the Grammys or something. There is an audience there, but it's for the 10 million people at home watching or live sport or something. It's TV oriented. So I think it's so cool to have a conference where like you are talking in perpetuity to people watching the recording, right? Yeah, I think it works so well because Andrew believes so much in the Rails community and it is the ideal thing to be starting a business on that that enthusiasm just like kind of cascades into this conference. And so I'm excited to be the person who it feels very much like an ESPN role where someone, you know, just scored a touchdown. And instead, it's like you just gave this really great talk and you've probably inspired people to start businesses using Ruby on Rails. Let's dig into why. And just so fun. It's an entirely different take. And I think it's something we can always use another breath of fresh air into our community, I think. That's so amazing. And what is the concept for like, creating the thing that people don't know that they want or need. That's how I feel about this. I wasn't sitting, laying awake at night a month ago thinking, we need one of these, but it's been discovered. Now I'm like, oh yeah, we definitely need this. This is great. Mm -hmm. Like for the community and the hype and high production value and stuff. So where is it going to be again? So it's in Los Angeles. I've actually never been to Los Angeles before. It's in Hollywood. Wow. And the conference is at a really nice hotel in Hollywood. You can literally look out from the conference and see the Hollywood sign. So like just a very different affair than I'm used to for a Ruby or a Rails conference. And so I think Andrew is going to be setting the bar here. Taking my shot right now. I think this is going to be a huge success. Now, I'll tell you another reason I'm so happy to hear this. I feel like there's eras is a historian of Ruby. There's eras of Ruby, and I feel like we've entered a new one since about 2020, unrelated to the pandemic, but like when Rail 7 started coming around and a lot of things, a new podcasts and new people I've never seen before really getting into the community and adding lots and lots of energy. But the thing that's kind of been delayed was the in-person element that's kind of picked up over the last year is like, okay, is this having the oomph? And like completely new, exciting Rails conference coming into the world is an example of that. In the 2000s, you had all these ones like Windy City, Ruby, whatever. But it's really, really exciting to see this happening in the in-person and remote conference game with new creations. So can't wait to see all that. Yeah, I agree. And to your point, it's not just bringing the regional conferences back. It's bringing these smaller conferences back, but taking the brand. I'm going to go that way. I do have a marketing degree. (laughs) (laughs) It's taking the brand of that person and really applying it to the conference. And because those people are so highly respected in the community, already you're sold by like that person. And then you kind of get to experience the way that they would do a regional conference, if that makes sense. It also encourages me to go to a lot more conferences per year because when you drill down to just having two big conferences a year, they get kind of samey. And so having a very specific reason like why I would go to this specific conference, I think is really great. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's like there's these AAA, like been around for 17 years conferences, which are great, but there's definitely these other ones, which I think are like the lifeblood of the community as well. The other ones are huge and so important, but I think we're on the same page with this. Yeah. Totally agreed. Well, before we wrap up, I wanted to quickly touch upon a project that you're working on at work that you're excited about that involves the community. Yeah. So I do work on the team Ruby and Rails infrastructure that interfaces a lot. So if you know people who work at Shopify, They are quite possibly on this team for some of the bigger community members. And I just dropped in for a month to help out on a project that 
I'm hopeful that you'll be hearing about over the next year for some of the other teammates, but it touches on Rails upgrades and I'm really enjoying it because it touches on the problem that I, even I follow of is you don't upgrade your Rails every day. Maybe you're doing it once a year, plus a couple patch bumps. And there's so many things, like if Dependabop does it, like so bad, because there's so many steps that I always forget about, like the bumping the config defaults and what to do if bumping the config defaults doesn't work, like disallowed warnings and deprecations and like iterating through those and handling all the things to get your app actually on those defaults. So like if you go home today and you look at all your Rails apps and you look at the gem version and then you do command shift F config defaults, there's a decent possibility that those are different numbers, right? That you're pinned to 6.1, but you're on 7.0 or God forbid, maybe you're pinned to like 6.0 or something. So Point. the work here, I won't unveil much of it because hopefully this year we might have a lightning talk and maybe next year someone will be doing a proper talk and maybe something will be open source next year. So I'm doing a big teaser here around tooling. And this is where I'll leave it. But this is the beautiful thing about my team is when we see work, sometimes we're able to say, is this a Shopify thing or is this a everybody thing? And can we make it available? We have a decent amount of tooling people know today that's the product of that. And this is us trying to conquer the problem of, can we have a Rails engineer upgrade their Rails app having forgotten all the steps and be properly and appropriately handheld through each of those steps to be fully upgraded for each patch minor and major version? Because people don't talk about it, but we have hundreds of Rails apps at Shopify as well. So we get to test on ourselves, not just the monolith, but many, many other Rails apps. So I'm enjoying working on it. It's great to think about the developer as a customer and stay tuned over the coming months and next year to hear more on it. I am so excited about that because I think upgrades are something that you only think about when you're doing them. And it's so easy to look back and be like, oh, that upgrade was easy. I'm sure this upgrade's going to be easy, but you don't remember all the strife that you went through or the fact that you left some defaults in there for years that you were supposed to flip over. So I think automating that is going to be huge. And years from now, we won't even remember that it wasn't automated. Isn't that the goal? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll manage expectations. It won't be completely automated because there's like human steps that have to happen. Like you have to write, you have to have a test suite. But yeah, I think there's definitely elements of it where you can be helped beyond just having docs and definitely look forward to sharing it with the world. Awesome. Well, Nick, it is always such a joy to talk. I'm going to go grab some pickles now. You (laughs) grab some sauerkraut and I will talk to you soon. All right. Take care. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.